Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. We're recording this on March 10th, 2017, and this is episode 23. Politicos is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we're at Politicos Pod. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. Let's kick off our first segment. Will the real donors please stand up? Last weekend, right after I put the podcast out or at about the same time, I see the Globe and Mail drop this giant story where they've gone through and spoken to a lot of the lobbyists in British Columbia and compared their names to the list of donors for the BC Liberals and to the BC NDP to some extent. And what they found is a lot of these lobbyists are going to fundraising events on behalf of their clients under their own name. So they're getting the donation credit, but it means when you look at who's donating to the political parties, there's a sort of hidden wall of who's actually giving money. This is the Globe and Mail points out one of the very few things that is actually illegal under BC election finance laws. The corporation can throw as much money as they want. The Globe and Mail was just pointing out today, foreign companies have donated a lot to the BC Liberals and maybe $400 to the BC NDP. But this idea of lobbyists going on behalf of corporations sort of set off a whirlwind of activity this week. We saw Elections BC almost immediately say they're going to investigate the issue. We then saw them hand that over to the RCMP because it doesn't make sense for the elections agency to investigate the political parties during an election. So the RCMP will be looking at it. And we even saw the BC Liberals promise some reform in a bill, which we've yet to really find out what's going to be in. But that's kind of a big story. The only way the timing of this could be worse is if it was actually during the election campaign when this news broke. Uh, Two months to go. This is going to be in the headlines for a while. Nobody likes being under investigation the best of time. And during an election campaign, it's really not great for them. So there's definitely potential here for this to be a weight around the Liberals' neck going into the election and really hurt their chances. Yeah, it's really hard and looks so opportunistic to just at the last minute, once you're under investigation by the police, to go, maybe we'll look at some adjustments to the campaign finance laws. More than a few campaigns have been sunk by investigators making announcements during the campaign. Uh, Most recently, there was James Comey's announcements regarding the email investigation during the U.S. presidential election. And back in 2006, there's the RCMP commissioner's announcement about the sponsorship scandal investigation. And both of those really hurt the campaigns and arguably killed the chances of Clinton and Martin to get elected. It's definitely awkward, and it'll be interesting to see what they do actually put in their bill next week. Right now, there are two opposition member bills before the BC legislature. The BC NDP, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, introduced for the sixth time, I think it was, their attempt to ban corporate and union donations. The Greens, I think, have also potentially put forward their own plan to clean up BC's election financing a bit. And both of them are campaigning on that and saying, these are things that need to change. The Greens are taking the sort of moral high road, as we discussed, where They're not accepting any corporate or union donations. They weren't getting many before, so it's not a big loss. But it allows them to say to the NDP, put your money where your mouth is and clean up your act if you want us to trust you. And it's not something I think the NDP are in any rush to buy into. We saw the Alberta NDP win with union donations and then immediately turn around and ban them. 
And there is some risk here in this investigation for the NDP. It's not like this was a solely BC Liberal problem. It's obviously worse for the BC Liberals as they're the party in power. They're the ones who have the ability to fix these issues and to be proactive and to be leaders. The biggest thing they've done so far is to try to be really proactive in terms of just releasing their donation lists, almost as a way to embarrass the other parties. That's a great step, I think, but it doesn't solve the fact that lots of money is flowing in. The VC Liberals got $12 million last year. The BC NDP got $6 million. This is more than most other provinces. Like The BC Liberals are making more money than the Ontario Liberals for a province much bigger. They're making almost, a th- I think it's about a third of what the federal Liberals are making. So the BC Liberals could almost compete at the national stage with the war chest they have. And so tinkering around the edges or being proactive at disclosure is not really the solution here. It doesn't really engender new confidence in the electoral system. But what do you think the BC Liberals will try to do next week? I think they are going to continue with what they were already doing on the transparency front, highlighting the fact that they have a near real-time release of all their donor information. So they're going to kind of highlight the areas they're doing better in than the NDP. They'll put forward some measures to address the specific issues raised with this investigation. And I imagine as the NDP keep, and the Greens for that matter, keep attacking them, they're going to try and highlight the admittedly much smaller number of donations that the NDP received. And this the, what, 400-something? And try and play it as, you know, everybody's horrible and... You know, nobody has the moral high ground here, but we're doing these things great. You know, with our releasing the, our donation information and try and basically play it off as everybody's terrible, but we're going to make some token changes. And I don't know how much that's going to play. It really feels right now like the media is getting really sick of this unregulated free-for-all, as it were, in BC politics. The Globe and Mail, the last really big story I noticed from them was the Unfounded series, which they launched a few weeks ago, which was the result of a 20-month investigation into unfounded sexual assault claims by police departments. That was a massive story on a Saturday edition, which has then been followed up weekly with more and more stories all around the same sort of issue. And they're planning to continue on that series until they basically solve the issue as best they can. This kind of feels like the same level of story where they put this major Wild West expose in, and then they've started releasing more stories, like today's foreign donations column. And Gary Mason's in the Globe, and he's been covering BC quite thoroughly and sort of talking about these issues for a while. It's almost like the media that would usually be very sympathetic to the BC Liberals. We know the National Post and Post Media is always pretty much on board with the Conservatives or center-right parties, and the Globe and Mail's a bit more liberal, but they feel like the newspaper of the BC Liberals But right now they're being pretty antagonistic, which is where a newspaper should be. It should never give the governing party an easy ride. But this could be a tougher campaign than I expected for Christy Clark at this rate. We have seen similar fundraising scandals get a lot of attention in other provinces and at the federal level and kind of continually coming up again and again until some action uh, finally got taken on it. The federal liberals had their $1,500 plate 
fundraisers with cabinet ministers and the prime minister, and that story dogged them all through the fall session. The Ontario Liberals, which we mentioned earlier, had similar issues with their own fundraising, and it finally led to them putting in some reforms late last year. And I think we're going to kind of see that same thing, where it's just going to be, you know, news story after news story of this not entirely above board bit of fundraising and just never fully going out of the news cycle. And that sort of slow burn that's really going to hurt them and arguably has been slowly smoldering away for last couple of election cycles, actually. And this one might be the one that finally uh, burns through. One thing that will be interesting to see coming out of these investigations is how much did the party know about the lobbyist donation methods? One of the big things in this story is that the lobbyists are being donated in their name on behalf of their clients and getting reimbursed, which is a big no-no. In fact, one of the few things that's explicitly against the BC election financing laws. And if it you know comes out that the premier or senior cabinet ministers knew that the lobbyists were funneling money from their clients this way, you know, that could be a much bigger scandal and really hurt them compared to if it was more the lobbyists were trying to pull one over on both the party and the public. Well, I think that's exactly how they'll get out of it. I don't think the lobbyists were trying to pull one over. It may have even just been a lack of awareness of some of the rules on some of their parts, as in he just bought tickets on his own name because they're a small firm and... They were fairly candid with the uh, newspaper reporters. That's true. Some of them too. were. So, yeah. So they may not even known there was one rule about this specific thing. They just figured if I put this on my credit card, I can claim the tax receipt, which some of them were doing, and everyone's happy. What does it matter? And so you have people who were doing this dozens of times, and you expect some people to donate a lot of times because they might be a monthly donor. But these are people going to lots of different fundraisers or donating for different clients, whether they're salmon fish farming coalitions, as was the example in the Globe and Mail story, or oil and gas companies or unions. So what I see this investigation coming down to is those people and those individuals who have donated too many times rather than the party failing to be diligent enough in saying, is that really you donating? Because I work for charities where if someone donates to me, I don't really question them if they're who they say they are. I just issue the tax receipt to Joe Smith because you sort of have to trust and you can't do that much work. I mean, a political party is a much bigger thing than a charity, but there's only so much checking you can reasonably do. But I think the bigger issue for the BC Liberals isn't the will Christy Clark be taken away in handcuffs before the election. I don't think that's going to happen. It just gets at a sort of core competency and core trustworthiness of their government. And when you have that second story, that's about the $10,000 from companies with no locations or $12,000 from oil and gas companies, all of which are outside Canada coming into BC and coming into the BC liberal coffers. That's all legal. And so no one's going to get in trouble for that unless the voters hold the government to account. Which is a good reminder to, of course, register to vote, which you can do online. We'll put a link in the show notes. Moving on to segment two, developmental difficulties. It's been a busy week in terms of housing policy here in Vancouver. Uh, we touched on last 
week about the character homes review and how the city government was looking to designate a large swath of the city, uh, approximately 12,000 homes as uh, character homes, and limit the development opportunities surrounding them. Uh, there's been significant pushback on that, and it looks like it, it's unlikely that the review of the character homes is going to be going in that direction where they initially indicated. Mayor Director Robertson's kind of backtracked a little bit on that and has started talking a lot more about the need to add density into these neighborhoods and is less supportive of the character homes than you initially was. And this was one of the several uh, announcements surrounding that. Uh, the city's also looking at ways to streamline the housing approval process. Uh, this came uh, after Minister Mike DeJong announced that he was looking at ways to get the cities to improve their uh, build an approval process and streamline it. The average time it takes to get a building permit approved has uh, more than doubled in the last couple of years, and this is presenting a serious difficulty. I can take up to nine months just to get a, the building permit. Now, if you have any other sort of permits, which you will, or zoning changes or anything like that, can add even more time. It, the development process before the first shovel ever hits the ground is quite long and almost torturous in terms of getting through and many have argued that that's one of the causes of the uh, high housing prices is that it's this sort of policy that's making it harder to develop homes and add the um, new supply onto the market. So they're looking at changing some of the internal processes at City Hall on that, putting single staff as points of contact for a different project which all seems fairly fine. Add expedited approval for laneway homes, which for those of you who aren't from Vancouver, you know these are small, detached houses. They're or, like garages, but yeah. with beds. Yeah, it's basically garage-like detached garage-like structures that have been developed or redeveloped to serve as housing. Kind of a way to add a little more housing stock onto the market, but really is just a small band-aid solution on it. I mean, it's, it's good to have, but it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. So these are going to be improved, but probably the most contentious, and at least the area I see is having the biggest problem, is the developing a streamlined process for proven developers. Terminology is a little vague there, but from the sounds of it, basically the large, well-connected developers are going to, in theory, have an easier time getting their plans approved than anyone else. The ones who probably donated to the BC Liberals or Vision Vancouver, because municipal politics has a lot of money in it, too, in Vancouver. So there are a lot of developers donating to these political parties. And I'm not saying that would guarantee them the streamline, but that would be the impression. So I would definitely agree with the flags you're throwing up on there. The minister's comments initially definitely feel like the kind of pass the buck. Like no one actually wants to deal with the housing crisis and there's so many things wrong that it's really easy to go, it's the city's fault because their bureaucracy is full and the city can turn around and go, well, no, it's the province's fault because we can't change some rules for whatever reason or they're allowing... Foreign money into the market exactly. is, is one of the common refrains. Or As they're giving out too many mortgages, essentially. They made, they made it easier to get mortgages at the same time they tried to slow it down with foreign money. So it's really easy to blame whoever you want. One of the other things that happened this week is Gregor Robertson was speaking to a group of planners, developers, and architects 
And Gary Mason in the Globe and Mail again described this as possibly one of the most important speeches of his time in office. And he says, it sounds like the mayor's ready to take on sacred cows on this. Some of the quotes from the speech he got is, we need to stop fixating on density because that's not what this is about. Density for density's sake might give us more empty homes. What we're talking about is people. He wants schools filled with students, neighborhood streets filled with shoppers, parks filled with kids. A neighborhood made of perfect $5 million homes with no children is not healthy. That's the sign of a failing city. I think what he's trying to get at is just the idea that we do need to build more homes, but one of the big problems in Vancouver is a lot of getting bought up by the wealthy, both domestic and foreign, just rich people buy homes because Vancouver's housing market keeps growing, so it's a pretty good investment still. And in that case, you have this empty home problem where things aren't being rented out, no one's living in them, it suffocates a neighborhood, and it sort of just strangles the city. So it's hard to know exactly how he's going to solve that. Some of the things he started talking about in that speech were taking city-owned land in the west side of Vancouver, areas like Kitsilano here where we live, and starting to develop that, either along laneways or right-of-ways and things like that, and putting, I guess, dense homes in there, which will piss a lot of people off because people with these big houses, especially in Shaughnessy and sort of southwest Vancouver, like their tree-lined, quiet neighborhoods. But if you suddenly say we're going to cram three times as many people in there because the city can, there's going to be rich people riots or whatever that means. I guess a lot of grumpy people at town halls writing letters and that is one of the ever-present problems in the housing debate is the uh, NIMBY contingent, uh, not in my backyard, for those who haven't heard the acronym before. And that's been a constant source of problems with getting anything developed here is that anytime some, some project goes up for approval, there's public meetings, whatnot, every local resident who doesn't want to see a tower put in or, you know, have other people move into their neighborhood comes in and can basically makes a huge fuss about it, complains, and it gets very politically expensive to get anything developed. And that's, I think, part of the bigger problem with how the city's approached development is by doing this kind of piecemeal uh, process, the political capital requirements on any project are huge. It creates a system where it's very hard to get anything developed, even if a project's in the city's long-term interest or... It, in theory, just meets all the normal requirements. The public meetings, uh, where there's a lot of pushback, make it very difficult to get stuff approved. One of the potential issues raised in the article on how they were looking at the approval process is moving to a spelled-out system of what the developer's community contributions are, which is this very nebulous requirement to improve the local community in some way with all their projects and every bit of ambiguity in how this goes just leads to more costs both in terms of political capital and just actual capital being spent to pay people to try and put these approvals together and then pay people to review them and it just leads to a very inefficient system overall and what I'd like to see is just go to a much simpler kind of shall approve method where you have everything, all the requirements laid out, any project that's within current zoning, which I'd also like to see changed, just gets approved automatically without having to go through all these various rounds of community negotiations, 
negotiations about developers' contributions and everything, and just make it a very simple process of, do you meet the Vancouver building code? Do you meet the Vancouver zoning code? You know, do you meet the BC plumbing code? All these ones, if it's just a yes across the board, here's your building permit, no more than 90 days after you filed. Yeah, when I grew up just outside of Calgary, I grew up on a farm, and so I got to watch the city sprawl grow and sort of overtake my dad's field subdivision by subdivision. And it was interesting watching how these subdivisions formed and like what shape each took and how each put in so many parks and there was elementary schools and you would see like being in the community, you would get notice like, here's the plan of this, or we just look it up because we are curious, like what's Harvest Hills going to look like? And it's very different when you have that sort of expanding community where you're like, there's nothing really there. So you get to design this neighborhood exactly how you want. Vancouver doesn't have empty space. So when you want to do something to a neighborhood, you are changing it. You are changing the characteristics. And I think that's where the idea of having a more ambiguous form came from is we need something that's versatile enough to deal with the difference of building a new development in Kitsilano versus downtown versus Collingwood. And each of those communities has unique things. Each has a certain number of parks already. And you kind of don't want to put it on the developer to say, count up how many parks are. And if there are, and if it's under this ratio, you need to increase it. But you also don't want to have to pay bureaucrats to do that. And so I can see why the system is the way it is. That doesn't mean it's perfect. It obviously isn't. It's broken. I'm basically just trying to say, I don't know if a single checklist that I think my engineering brain really likes would work. I like the idea of it, but in practicalities, just the characters and the natures of Vancouver. You do have to get local buy-in for a new project to some extent. It doesn't mean it gets a veto, but if you don't at least consult people, you're going to run into a lot more problems. And especially when you have a democratically elected city council, you want to keep the citizens happy. So finding the balance of making sure you can continue to develop and build and get more buildings in while also keeping the voters on side. Yes, just to push back a little against that, though, there's a decent amount of evidence out there that hyper-local planning and zoning rules just lead to a very restrictive approach to development where everybody tries and pushes it off onto somewhere else. You know, it would be very easy to see if, you know, if every block got to do the vote, every block would say no development on this block, you know, do it two blocks over and nothing would get developed. And uh, Japan's actually an interesting counterpoint to that where their land use policy is actually set at the national level and even Tokyo, a city roughly equivalent to Canada in terms of population, is actually very affordable to live in, in large part because they actively develop the city and their zoning code is actually fairly simple and easy to get projects approved with. So are you arguing for a strong central planning committee? Because I think you've just become the socialist <laughs> on this show. <laughs> No, I'd just say the issue isn't central planning versus hyper-local planning. It's over-planning in general has been the problem with uh, development. I definitely don't think the national level is probably the best way to do it. Ottawa is a very long ways away from here, and there is some local stuff. That knowledge doesn't get transferred very easily. And the bigger issue is the highly restrictive plans and if some bureaucrat in Ottawa was saying, you know, this block here is only going to be single family residential and this block here is going to be, you know, a five story tower, you run into the same problems 
the locus of decision making's changed a bit, but the fundamental problem is that it's not adaptable to changing uh, conditions and changing market factors is still there, whether or not it's centrally planned or not. I much rather see a much more permissive approach to development, provided uh, basic uh, safety issues are taken care of in terms of structural requirements, the you know building codes followed, the rate of development happens slow enough that the infrastructure can be upgraded in time to accommodate it. But other than that, I think there's way too much fine fine tuning and control over here, and that leads to an, a system that isn't adaptable to the changing uh, conditions in the growing population of Vancouver. So I, ideally, I think what would happen is some sort of policy where, you know, if you're, say, one standard deviation higher than the average area or so, or some, you know, sustainable growth path that isn't super high, but allows stuff to be continually added, you know, probably in reference to the existing density plus a small growth factor. That would be a much more sustainable way to do it, combined with a shall issue permitting system, which just would speed things up, make it so there's growth, but not, you know, unsustainably crazy high growth, but not no growth, like we've seen in a lot of areas in Vancouver. And moving to a system like that would help a lot more. And it's just disappointing that, you know, Gregor Robertson talks about density and the needs to it, and it's been reasonably development-friendly, but he's been long on vision and short on actually taking the necessary steps to make housing affordable. And we're nine years out from him making the promise to end homelessness and two years past that deadline. And he makes token changes to the laws and policies surrounding development, but nothing to actually take the big, bold steps that's needed. And that, I think, has been the bigger, biggest problem is that Despite all these lofty announcements, the fundamentals haven't changed significantly to solve the uh, housing problem. At the regional level, at least or even coming from the provincial level, there is some pressure coming. Finance Minister Mike DeJong is also calling on the municipalities to really build up at transit corridors, all of the new SkyTrain <clears throat> stations. Especially in Burnaby, there are giant towers at every station now, or planned ones. Even here in the city of Vancouver, they were looking at doing a whole bunch of towers at Oak Ridge Canada Line Station until I think they discovered a like subterranean lake that sunk those towers, I guess. So those are in the possible future. But there's some hope that this will help, that getting more towers in and getting dense city around the transit stations, which is where you want it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, mean, I think there's a role for a more gentle density across the city, close or far from transit. But around transit, it really makes sense to uh, allow a lot more development. And it's kind of a little crazy that some of the uh, Millennium and Espo line stations in the southeast corner of the city are the tallest structures in their area. And you also get situations like the uh, tower that was proposed at Commercial and Broadway, which is kind of the nexus point for all transit coming in from the eastern communities. And yet that faced fierce local opposition in what is the obvious spot to add density. And it's eventually ended up going down to, I believe, 12, 10 or 12 stories. And a block away from there, it's still detached single-family housing. So we're not actually seeing this go forward. And any like little movement towards it 
faces big pushback. And I sadly don't think this is going to change until we get a new mayor with a, with a new mandate and it's going to do their kind of, you know, early mandate bid reform. And I think that's the only thing that's going to eventually make the necessary changes to this. I'm very sympathetic, obviously, to the idea of transit. But I also wonder at the same time, I myself was in the market for a condo recently. And all those condos in the towers at Brentwood, at Metrotown, at the sort of major hubs in Burnaby, and even Burnaby, which is a city out from Vancouver, or it's the next city over from Vancouver, were out of our price range. They were sort of starting at 600000 or more for a two-bedroom, and a very small one at that. We had to go to sort of the next station over, like the smaller station that hasn't been developed yet, into the like, it's not a sketchy neighborhood, but the it'll be a nice neighborhood once everything's built kind of area. And even there, we're still paying 400000 for a two-bedroom in a low-rise. So, like, all the towers in Metrotown are really expensive still. I wonder if it's almost getting back to these other comments I was alluding to earlier from Gregor Robertson about the issue of density's not enough. If you just keep building more, it just gets all snatched up by the wealthy and then not necessarily put back on the market or made available for people to actually live in. And uh, and I don't know what the solution is, and I don't know if he does, other than sort of saying we'll build 3,000 affordable homes that we'll only give to middle or lower income people. But Well, the solution was to do that 20 years ago. Regardless of whether or not a market's high or low, most new housing tends to be uh, towards the higher end of the distribution. It's, you know, that's where the money is. That's who can afford to buy these buy new housing. And typically what happens is the well-off move from their okay current housing into the nice new housing and they free up space and then the middle class move into the formerly well-off housing. And it, it's a concept known as filtering where there, you get a turnover in the housing market as structures age. They tend to go down in the uh, section of the market they serve. And in a city that's had a well-functioning development ecosystem, you know, that turnover happens fairly naturally. And as I was alluding to with the 20-year-ago comment is that if we had been building out over the past couple decades, it wouldn't be nearly such a problem. And I think that is kind of one of the areas where nobody knows all that much about how to solve is what happens when you have such a upended market. It's really hard to add that new supply on onto the market in a way that um, helps that much. And it may take, you know, 10 years of intense building to actually get to the point where it's starting to filter effectively. If you take a photo of downtown Vancouver from 20, 30 years ago and compare it with now, you'll be hard pressed to say they haven't built anything in this city. They have built quite a few towers. I will criticize ConocoPhillips for sitting on the giant bit of land on False Creek right by Rogers Arena and BC Place there which is perfect land for anything, literally build something on it, but it's a fucking parking lot still, and it's ugly as sin, and it's just under the viaducts and the SkyTrain. The viaducts are potentially also going to get ripped out, and that makes... That's actually going ahead. And that makes a fantastic new quarter that can feed into the entertainment district. It could revitalize some of the old black neighborhoods that used to be around there that got torn down when they put the viaducts in. You could do a lot with that area, and there are some like hints at plans, but it seems like at this point the developer's like, we need more money to really make it, because it is a, such a valuable piece of property. 
Yeah, and that's actually goes to another area that's often frequently recommended by economists on in terms of housing policy to move to a land value tax where you tax the value of the underlying land, not the structures on it, uh, as a way to incentivize the most effective use of that land. Now, of course, in a situation like Vancouver, you, you might get cases like that, but in most cases, you'd be running up against the uh, zoning limits, so eh, not quite as helpful on that. Uh, going back to your comment about the change, and yeah, we, we've definitely have built. It, it hasn't been static, but at the same time, there's been a significant gap between population growth and the number of new units brought onto the market. So while we are developing for decades now, we've been underbuilding relative to our population growth, and that's definitely hurt us. Well, let's jump into a few quick takes. First off, as we mentioned last week, Nikki Ashton was expected to jump into the NDP leadership race this week, and she did. This is ahead of their first leadership debate, which is going to be on Sunday afternoon in Ottawa. I'll probably watch it in the evening because I have things going on earlier in the day, but it'll be interesting to see what they roll out as their first plans for the first four contenders. Yeah, it's going to be a nice change of pace from all the uh, conservative leadership race coverage we've done so far. And Nikki Ashton's running pretty heavily on the millennial vote, so it's going to be interesting to see how uh, effective she is at turning out the lowest turnout demographic out there. And I'm just looking forward to a leadership race where we don't have to worry about pandering to the alt-right. In transportation news, BC Transportation Minister uh, Todd Stone has announced that they're going to be looking at revitalizing the old ENN railway on Vancouver Island, uh, specifically in and around the Victoria area and the western communities, uh, establishing a commuter rail service. They were actually expected to make a full-on announcement about bringing it back. Instead, they've just announced a study into the issue, and that's definitely you know, a step in the right direction because the commutes in from the uh, those communities have been pretty terrible. Um, it's locally known as the Colwood Crawl to describe the rate of traffic movement. Um, so having some transit options would be good, but nothing much is in terms of real commitments have happened on that, which is kind of an interesting counterpoint to the budget, which we saw a couple of weeks ago when they heavily highlighted some other transportation infrastructure, but this was all road funding. So it kind of indicates where the uh, BC Liberals' priorities are. And we'll see if that changes once the uh, campaign really gets into gear. You also have to remember there aren't a lot of BC Liberal seats in the capital region or on Vancouver Island in general. I'm sure there's a couple, but their focus for the election's not really there. So there's probably not feeling a lot of urgency to throw money at transit in that area when they can build giant bridges to Surrey and Delta. Not that that hasn't stopped them from uh, funding a big interchange on the way into Victoria. Well, speaking of trains, this senator's comments have been compared to those apologists who say the Nazis are good at keeping the trains running on time. Conservative Senator Lynn Bayak attracted all kinds of outrage this week when she spoke in the Senate about the, quote, good deeds accomplished by the well-intentioned religious teachers at the residential schools. And she felt the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really didn't realize how good white people were trying to 
save the poor natives. And it's an argument I've heard before, and I hear from some people at times, the sort of, well, the goal of the residential schools was good, which is historically untrue when you had people specifically talking about how they were intended to essentially eradicate the Indian problem, which was a phrase commonly used. I'm sure there were lots of nice people who worked there, but there's lots of nice people who are complicit in all kinds of terrible situations. That doesn't absolve the situation. So unsurprisingly, she's being lambasted heavily, especially by the NDP, who's indigenous affairs critic is Romeo Saganash, who actually, he's an MP in Northern Quebec, who is First Nations himself. He ran in the last leadership race, and he's not running in this one. But he's a very highly respected MP, both within the NDP and I think across the benches. And so his rebuke of the senators, at least getting some attention. Naturally, of course, there's been calls for her to resign from the Senate over this. Of course, the downside to our current Senate setup is there's really no method to force that. So we'll just see whether or not she feels enough embarrassment over it or, you know, she's going to keep on trucking and collecting that senator's salary. Switching from conservatives making facepalmingly out-of-touch comments to conservatives making well-reasoned points, uh, Preston Manning, the founder of the Reform Party and elder statesman of the conservative movement, made some news this week by putting out a call for conservatives to stop attacking carbon pricing. Uh, This isn't exactly a new position for him. Since he's left politics, he's focused a fair bit of attention on having conservative approaches to dealing with the uh, environmental issues and has been a proponent of carbon pricing for a while. So this isn't too far out of the norm. But what is kind of interesting is that uh, the conservatives are as a party, are aiming pretty heavily at Justin Trudeau's carbon tats, and it's been a running theme of the leadership race, with 13 of 14 candidates opposed, and uh, Michael Chon all by himself arguing for it. Uh, Manning didn't come out and actually endorse Michael Chon or his plan, although his recommendations were fairly close to it. He avoided making any clear signs on where he wanted the leadership to go, but he did come up pretty strongly against the claim that carbon taxes are ineffective, shouldn't be done, and called on conservatives to attack how they've been implemented, not that they're being implemented. Probably approach of many of the uh, existing models in Canada hopelessly bundled. Manning's really latched on to a report from the right-wing Fraser Institute that sets out a number of characteristics for a ideal right-wing carbon tax. You know, it's got to be genuinely revenue neutral, has to reduce environmental regulations, and there should be no subsidies for alternative energy sources. I'm assuming this has to be a pretty high carbon tax in that case to actually make up for not having anything else in place, but it's a small government approach. This is, of course, not the approach taken by Alberta or Ontario or the federal government, It's not even the approach taken by BC and Manning's in the Fraser Institute's words, which BC is often touted as the sort of right-wing approach. So when our carbon tax isn't right-wing enough for the Fraser Institute, you know the realm (laughs) they're going. But Manning found one he likes, and he thinks other conservatives should at least be willing to entertain the idea. And I do applaud him for that. I think, to his credit, Aaron O'Toole had half a 
climate plan. I don't think he came fully out with it, but... It's more than most have done. Yeah, I think he was sort of playing for the Michael Chong second choicers. And I'm actually surprised that hasn't been a strategy Maxime Bernier has gone harder for, because for a while he was seeming, except for his sort of libertarian wacky end, as the, well, at least he's not courting the alt-right or going off into the anti-immigrant fringe that other candidates seem to be chasing each other down. But he's gone down that dark path, and now it's sort of Chong, O'Toole, and Lisa Raitt, and that might be it, who aren't... Deepak O'Brien. And Deepak O'Brien, of course. Deepak's awesome. Sadly, he's probably going to get knocked out first rounds, but I'm sure his three votes will be very useful to uh, Michael Chong and Aaron O'Toole. He might beat Peterson. Yeah, we, we've touched on this before, but it's actually just kind of weird how carbon pricing has played out in the conservative party. You have the rest of the political spectrum moving towards a market solution to the uh, issue, and rather than celebrating the win for their free market goals, they're running as fast and as far away from it as they can. At least it's just a fair bit of ideological incoherence from the uh Conservative Party, especially during the uh, later days of the Harper era, where they were touting their sector-specific regulatory approach, which is something you'd expect to see from the NDP, not the Conservatives. Well, speaking of going after carbon taxes, Kevin O'Leary's in the news this week because he's promising to do everything he can to get Rachel Notley out of office if he becomes Prime Minister. He's specifically going to go after her for introducing a carbon tax. And he's talking about being punitive on transfer payments for health care and finding ways to essentially, I guess, punish Alberta for electing a government that would do a carbon tax. This is very reminiscent to comments he made. I think it was last year where he promised a million dollars of investment money for the oil industry in Alberta if Rachel Notley resigned, which I guess he doesn't realize, but the oil industry operates in the billions with a B, not the millions with an M. But maybe they don't have that much money on the Shark Tank or wherever else he is these days. So it's just another case of him, I think, trying to pick a fight with Rachel Notley just to maybe court the disenfranchised right wing of Alberta. Premier's running against federal politicians has been a tried and true tactic Uh, It's a little odd here to see the opposite happen, where a federal politician uh, is going after Alberta. And it's Kevin O'Leary, so I'm not sure how much of this is, you know, him just being a blowhard, or how much he thinks the Prime Minister has power over the provincial governments. If he is genuinely wrong on this, which is very likely, he's going to be in for a rude awakening in the horrible situation he actually becomes Prime Minister... But what's really interesting about this is that it represents a very significant departure from kind of the Harper legacy towards federal-provincial relations. Harper was very much focused on maintaining the kind of fairly strict separation between what was a provincial responsibility and what was a federal responsibility. And you know, with health care, for example, he was like, we're just going to, this is what our transfer payment's going to be. We're not going to get into a long, drawn-out fight with the promises over it. This is what we're going to do. Going forward with the Canada Health Transfer, you provinces, it's your responsibility to implement it. That's it. And this is the exact opposite. And if anything more reflects a big liberal approach to the provincial-federal relations with Ottawa heavily interfering in provincial affairs. 
And it's just a very interesting departure on this. And I think one more hint that Kevin O'Leary's a bit more of a liberal with a uh, blustery conservative uh, brand. I also get the sense he doesn't understand how transfer payments work because they're not just a tool that the government can withhold when they're grumpy. But that's a topic for an entire separate podcast. The list of things that Kevin O'Leary doesn't understand about uh, government. government. We could just list them off and we'd be here for the next three days. In other federal news, Parliament passed a genetic discrimination bill this week, adding genetic characteristics to prohibited grounds for discrimination. So, for example, people who've done the 23andMe or other similar genetic tests, uh, can those results can no longer be taken into account for various decisions, including uh, insurance. Which, you know, I just did one of those tests, haven't got the results back yet, so that's welcome news. But what's most interesting about this is that the Liberal backbench split with the cabinet on this one and the leadership. All but four of the Liberal backbenchers went against their uh, leadership on this one and voted for the bill. This is particularly notable because Canada has one of the strongest party discipline systems among Westminster democracies. So having such a heavy split between the leadership and the caucus is quite notable. This and the, nom- the nomination race that went against the PMO's favorite in Stefan Dion's old riding, I think goes to show that there's starting to be some wedges formed between Justin Trudeau's inner circle and the rest of the Liberal Party, and that you know maybe his personal brand isn't carrying as much uh, power as it used to with in the Liberal circles. Well, it looks like on this specific bill, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Justice Minister, and Justin Trudeau took this weird argument that this bill might be unconstitutional, but not for any sexy reason, just for the reason that it might step on the toes of provincial jurisdiction to regulate insurance. But that would arguably apply to anything you add to the Human Rights Act. They're adding gender identity and gender expression to the Human Rights Act to protect transgender people. That would have insurance implications if you had extended health benefits to cover gender reassignment surgery in a province that didn't cover it, arguably. There might be a claim there, but there's no argument that that's coming up. This one obviously has a much tighter relation to extended health insurance in terms of, as you were saying, those tests you get, could they deny you coverage based on the genetic testing? There's a good scientific argument that they shouldn't because those tests aren't actually as good as most people say, and there's big error bars. And so the data you get from it's not as, oh yeah, you have cancer or you will have cancer. It's like, well, you have a slightly higher than average chance of getting cancer, and that doesn't necessarily tell you enough. But as you're saying, the interesting thing here is that disunity, and it's so sharp that it's almost like he was able to convince his core cabinet, except for a couple parliamentary secretaries who didn't have a lot to lose, and just four random backbenchers to his side. And it's really interesting, of course, too, that the Conservative Party, who would be the ones to stand up for the separation of federal and provincial powers, seem to have gone along, for the most part, with this bill as well. So it's interesting to see that the only people buying Trudeau's arguments are his inner circle, it seems like. And I wonder if in other cases where he's made arguments like this is how the Constitution would treat this, like when he brought in the assisted dying legislation where he said, well, we're bringing in something that's constitutional, even though 
constitutional experts are telling us it isn't, maybe the cracks we have here would have blocked that bill in the past if people aren't buying his arguments anymore. Yeah, what I'd really like to know about this, and unfortunately I don't think we ever will, is if there wasn't the Cabinet Solidarity Convention, would the Cabinet have even gone with him on this one? Well, coming back to BC politics, the election's coming up, so it's time for all kinds of policies to start dropping from the sky, which could have been announced any time in the last decade or more of the BC Liberals' multiple mandates. This week, we discovered the province is going to bring in regulations to permit ride-sharing apps to operate in the province by the end of the year. Vancouver's famous for being the only city in North America where you can't get Uber or Lyft or these sort of services, mainly because they're hoping for something like this to basically regulate them in a constructive way rather than most of the time where Uber just goes in and operates illegally until they get away with it. And that's what actually makes this a little noteworthy in how long it's taken is because like you said, Uber didn't push into this market because they expected to be able to get a fairly good deal just through the normal channels. In fact, that it's taken so long to even get an announcement on there is kind of interesting. In the deal, the government needs to sort of allay the fears of the taxi industry. So they're going to invest a million dollars in helping taxi cabs develop an app to call cabs, which I'm pretty sure some a lot of the big cab companies already have apps and no one uses them because people hate cabs or when they have to take cabs, they just call the number. Yeah, this is, it's a pure corporate welfare thing to allay the fears because the taxi cab companies can more than afford to do this out of their already overly high fares. So the fact that the government's just given this money away to the taxi cab company is basically a quite down now money without actually netting anything good in return. And on top of that million dollars, there's another three and a half for crash prevention software to improve safety. I had hoped safety was already on the mind, but I guess more money for safety is always a good thing. Taxis are also going to have exclusive rights to be hired by phone at stands or from the curb. So the only way you'll be able to get a ride sharing is through an app, I guess, or through a website. More or less how they do it already. Yeah. And... Cabs and rideshare services will have equal access to cross municipal boundaries, and this is something that I know comes up as a problem in a lot of municipalities. I remember living in the city of Edmonton where the airport's just out of town, and so it's in a different municipality, and so Edmonton cabs could take you to the airport, but they couldn't pick people up there. So these stupid intermunicipal politics meant cabs were going empty one way or sometimes like illegally taking someone back to town just because that would make it fair. And it just meant wasted time for drivers. It meant everyone was basically paying a double fare. It was horrible. It, it, it really, it, that's actually just like a perfect example right there of just how protectionism makes everything super inefficient and ends up costing more in the long run. And it's no surprise that when someone like Uber comes into the market, you know, that you're going to get pushback on that. So being allowed to take a taxi from Vancouver to Burnaby and then take that same taxi back just because it's there just makes sense for everyone. And the government's also going to do some vague steps to address the provincial taxi shortage, which also is probably going to upset the taxi industry because the reason there's usually a shortage is because they tend to run these license monopolies where there's only a finite number of licenses and that's how they keep their fares high. 
So overall, these are good steps. I have a lot of reservations about Uber as a company because they're horribly misogynistic and don't seem to give two shits about worker protections or passenger protections in a lot of cases. I would hope that the regulations as they come in could do a bit more as well to make sure that people are getting paid and if they are working more as an employee that they get treated as an employee. A lot of the problem with a lot of this sharing economy is people end up working as though they're employees. Like a lot of these companies will require you to wear certain uniforms or be on the clock essentially and you're treated as an employee, but but you're just a contractor. So you're exempt from labor laws, which ends up screwing a lot of these individuals. It's hard to say exactly where they'll come down. It seems like they're going for a less regulated approach right now. The only requirements is they're saying you have to have a class five driver's license, which is the basic. You have to be 19, pass a driving check and pass a criminal records check, which feels like the bare minimum kind of level of if we're letting people drive each other around. Hopefully Uber and Lyft have slightly higher standards than just not being a convicted sex offender and having a license. The one hiccup in this whole plan is that municipalities do still have the ability to ban the service entirely. So there's actually a moratorium barring Uber from the city of Vancouver, which is in place until at least October. So the question will be, will the city of Vancouver renew that to sort of overrule the province beyond when this new system comes in? And of course, the election could change it all. If the BC Greens win, they have bills before the legislature already setting out how ride-sharing should be moved forward. And it'll be interesting, I guess, to see what the NDP pitches forward, because it is coming. And so the question is, how do you do it from a sort of center-left point of view? Yeah, and so far their response has basically been just to criticize this as an election stunt without offering a compelling alternative. Well, it definitely is an election stunt. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's a wrong. It can be an election stunt and the right thing to do. Yeah, I, all I'm saying is, though, that w- when your response is, it's a stunt, it, that's not a great counter uh, point if you're in a political argument. Fair enough. And finally, uh, Forum Research has put out a poll on electoral reform and specifically found that most Canadians, eh, they're more or less okay with the current system, with the notable exception of B.C., uh, we've talked a bit about how much the Liberals batting away from this promise of theirs to change the electoral system will hurt them. And this poll would seem to indicate that they probably don't have a huge amount to worry about, except possibly in BC. Polling on electoral reform is always so tricky because the phrasing of the question really matters. If you just say, what should your system have? And we, we talked about this a lot when the Liberals rolled out their survey on values about the electoral systems. Forum here asked, do you support the federal government's decision to keep Canadian voting procedures the same? I think if you ask most Canadians, do you support the government keeping things the same? They'll go, yeah, probably. Like if you know nothing about an issue, you generally want it to not change because change is a little bit risky. So the fact that 45% support the government and 38% nationally don't Isn't that surprising if you said, should the government have kept its promise to change the electoral system? Those numbers might have been reversed, like they're that close. That said, it's still interesting to see that BC swings opposite of Canada. 
that I don't think is a question dependent thing because they're relative to each other. Like British Columbians got asked the same as Ontario people. So we can compare those. In BC, it was 37% who agree with the government backtracking and 44% who wish the government had kept its promise. It's a smaller sample size. So those might be within error of each other. But this does sort of show that the liberals are weaker here. And Trudeau won a lot of seats in BC. I sort of speculated on this sort of environmental image on his electoral reform promises and this package. And this shows there's that chink in the armor. And as we start to move from the first half of his mandate, where it's promises and what's it going to be like into delivery and building up to the next election, we'll have to see if this starts to cost the government much more in terms of support locally. If they flub marijuana legalization, I could see that being the next thing that really disenfranchises a lot of soft liberal supporters in the province. Yes, BC is definitely an area that's, I think the liberals are going to be vulnerable to losing seats in. Uh, Probably here in Atlantic Canada being the two big ones, just because they completely swept Atlantic Canada so they can only go down. And here, because a lot of their policy announcements haven't played so well locally, now, of course, a huge amount is going to depend on who the uh, opposition parties select as their leaders. If you have someone who plays well in kind of the immigrant-rich suburbs, among the conservatives, they, they might be actually fairly competitive here. You know, I could easily see an over... Well, he's not going to win. But a, a Michael Chong-led uh, conservative party, you know, doing very well in Surrey, Richmond, kind of the outer reaches of the metro area. Same yeah. goes for Jagmeet Singh. Yeah, he, he'd do well too, although I think that some of those areas might be a little, already a little more favorable to the NDP, uh, particularly, say, the Burnaby ridings and whatnot. So who pits up those votes is definitely going to depend a lot on that, because, you know, if Kelly Leach or uh, Kevin O'Leary's running the show, you know, the Conservatives are just out of those ridings. They're not going to win those at all. And, you know, the NDP stands to gain quite a bit from that so it's really dependent on who's going to be the opposition leaders but at the same time the liberals are definitely vulnerable and they're going to be bleeding support here if they keep up this current trajectory yeah they'll have to keep a few more promises i guess and that has been politicos find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politicos.ca make sure to subscribe on itunes or re-listen to podcasts and follow us on facebook and twitter at politicos pod Leave us a review and let us know what you think. And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.